Hey guys. Hey, I really appreciate you taking the time away from your families on a Sunday night at six o'clock. Um, we have such an amazing guest and this is an opportunity for you to ask your questions in person. And so that's why it was so important for you guys to get on today. Um, so how we're going to do this is um, we found the easiest way to ask your questions is actually just to type it in the chat because what's happening is our guest, Alex, who Mike is going to intro here in a second. Um, he's going to talk on a topic and then it's going to spur a question. And rather than everyone cutting in um, to make the most use of our time, typing in the chat and going from there, I think is the way to go. And then I'll call out those questions as we go. So I'm going to take it away. Thank you, Alex, so much for being here. But Mike, if you can go with the intro. Yeah, so super excited for our guest tonight, uh, Dr. Alex Harrison. Um, I've worked with Alex a couple times. Uh, he's a, a nutrition coach uh, for uh, RP Strength. Uh, I don't know if m a lot of people have heard of uh, that uh, that platform, but uh, he's more their, uh, I would say, resident uh, endurance uh, diet coach. So kind of anybody who's in that uh, biking, running, cycling, triathlon, long course, uh, endurance type stuff, uh, kind of goes towards Alex and his wife, uh, Michelle, who's also a coach for RP strength. So I, we sent out the bio, so I'm not going to run down the bio, but what we didn't send out. And what I think is super important is, uh, I'm going to brag on, uh, Alex's wife just briefly because he does it all the time on social media. And I think we're only as good as our better half. Uh, and he is her nutrition coach. So, uh, Michelle, who uh, is also a strength coach for, for or a nutrition coach for RP Strength, uh, just got done uh, with, uh, she did the Rafa 500 in the last year, uh, which is a 500 kilometer ride that you're supposed to do over a week. She did it in a single ride. He did her nutrition for that. Uh, she Mariana trenched, which I, you can correct me. It's like 60,000 feet of gain in a single ride. Um, I, something like that. Yeah. 30, 30, it's 11,000 meters. Okay, so it's it's a lot of climbing in, in a single ride, uh, which is insane. Uh, the the height of the Mariana Trench. Uh, she's a Cat One road cyclist, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, she had a really good uh, showing at, at nationals, and uh, she just got her pro uh, triathlon card. So uh, I, I wanted to brag on her just because uh, Alex uh, had a is is her nutrition coach. So um, I think one of the things though, as we as we kick this thing off. Uh, as we talked about what we wanted to talk about today, as you guys kind of formulated some questions, um, I think our team is really is really performance based, uh, but we're kind of broken into two subsets in that in that mindset. And, and I would say that half the team is probably in the category of trying to look to um, really reshape their body composition by maybe trying to lose some body fat, uh, gain muscle, those type of things, but but uh, lose that lose that body fat percentage. And then we have another half of our team that's probably in the category of trying to maintain uh, their their weight. And because of the amount of work that we're doing uh, over the course of a week, uh, a month, uh, a year, you know, it's hard for some people to to maintain that weight. So one of the things I wanted to kick this thing off with is just kind of ask uh, Alex. Um, kind of just some general principles for, for those athletes that are looking to maintain uh, weight through, through everyday nutrition. And then we can kind of dive down into what are some things you're, you're looking to do if you want to try to lose some body fat. Sure. Um, so I, I think the biggest, the most important thing to focus on when seeking weight maintenance as a triathlete is fueling your performance. And I think there's a lot of room to do that in sort of your caloric constraint, uh, because you train a lot, you need to eat a lot and some of the best time to eat and consume the calories that you need to be consuming for weight maintenance is during your training and around your training. 
Um, so I, I think optimizing intra workout nutrition um, and, and really taking advantage of how much leeway you have to consume a lot of calories and a lot of carbs intra training um, is, is where folks can, can benefit the most from a maintenance type plan. It's pretty easy, honestly. It's, it's, there's a lot of room for error and a lot of room for, for flexibility uh, when seeking weight maintenance, you can, you can do 0.7 grams of protein per pound per day, or you can do 0.9 or you can do 0.6. And probably if you are, if you, if you're consuming sufficient carbohydrates to fuel your training, well, you, you probably will have great muscle retention. You won't have any muscle retention worries. You'll probably have a relatively lean body composition in maintenance. There's a lot of room for error. You can choose a little bit of a higher fat diet, as long as you're still consuming sufficient carbs for, uh, to fuel your training. But um, yeah, when, when you get into fat loss, things tighten up a little bit and there's less, less room for error when you're trying to seek weight loss and fat loss. But in maintenance, it's like you can spend a, a lot of your daily allotment of calories and carbs towards fueling your training. So big, big carby meals before training, lots of carbs per hour. And we'll, I'm sure we'll get into fluid consumption rates and carb consumption rates during training. But um, yeah, you can take advantage of really maximizing glycogen repletion immediately post-training by maximizing your intra-workout training uh, carbohydrate intake. Yeah, I think um, we'll we'll dive deeper into the intra-workout uh, nutrition here in a second. Let's let's take the other side of that and look at you. You said things as you look into like a fat loss phase, things start to start to tighten up. You don't have as much leeway now. What would yeah. be some of your guiding principles for those that would be looking to kind of maybe do the the fat loss phase and try to reshape body composition while also fueling for performance? You know, not not losing a ton of performance uh, benefits. Yeah, gen generally the first thing, and this is, this is an unpopular stance in some circles of triathlon. So I may ruffle feathers right away, but generally uh, it's best to have fat calories come down pretty early on, not super low, but they are going to need to be moderate to low early on in a fat loss diet phase, because your carbohydrates are your king for fueling your performance intra training. And if you drop protein too low, you're likely to lose muscle along with the fat. So it, you're going to need probably um, at least 0.8 grams per pound uh, of protein per day for good muscle retention while seeking weight loss and fat loss as an endurance athlete. And if you can, if you have caloric room in your, in your diet to, to do one gram per pound per day, that might be, that might be optimal for some folks, but really if that causes any sacrificing of carbohydrate intake, to meet those really high, like one gram per pound protein um, intake per day, you'd probably would be better off with more carbohydrates and sticking it right around 0 0.8 grams per pound protein intake during fat loss. Now, as fat loss progresses and weight loss progresses, as you've lost more weight, the calories actually have to come down further um, to continue losing weight, N not to maintain your new leaner, lighter body composition and body weight, but to, if you wanted to continue losing weight, um, calories need to continue to reduce until you move into maintenance, at which point the calories jump up again. But during that final state, those final stages of fat loss, calories have to continue to come down. And in those cases, cutting protein down to like 0.7 or 0.6 grams per pound is sometimes a better answer than starting to cut carbs. Because if you cut carbs, um, 
yeah, your training, that's when training quality is like, okay, I'm going, I'm going really well. And then all of a sudden you get into longer training sessions and it's like, this is really, really bad. All of a sudden, um, you definitely have to go pretty low fat. Um, and lots of folks get away with going really, really low fat for a few weeks to get their calorie count down. Um, as long as they continue to fuel their training with, uh, adequate carbohydrate. I dropped a, a deal in the chat here, which is a, an image that you refer to a lot. It's the kind of the hierarchy of what's important for, oh, for a fat yeah. loss phase. Um, kind mm -hmm. of your template in terms of like, just, you know, making sure that you are consuming, you know, the being compliant, you know, with, with the diet, but then, you know, as you, as you get into, uh, say like nutrition timing supplements, though it, it starts, the window starts to shrink, right? I think the number one thing yeah, would be obviously compliance with the, Absolutely. With the overall uh, diet. Talk a little bit about just how you would go about looking at your macros for either a um, fat loss phase or, or a maintenance phase. How would uh, an athlete go about kind of determining that? And then I'm also going to link to uh, the endurance calculator too in the chat. So, so people can look at that as well. So to determine maintenance, essentially, if, if you are maintaining your weight right now, roughly, and you have been for the past few months or weeks or whatever, uh, an easy way to figure out uh, your daily KCAL need or your calorie need is do a dietary recall for the last week and average it out and figure out about how many, and, and it doesn't, it can be a rough estimate, um, but figure out how many calories you're consuming and then keep consuming that amount. And then you can start to optimize macronutrient breakdown like how many grams of how much of those calories how much of it should come from carbs like x grams of carbs per day how much of it should come from protein and how much of it should come from fat within whatever your maintenance calories are um that's probably the simplest easiest scenario like if you're at the body composition you want roughly um and you and you want to figure out what maintenance is just keep eating the same amount you're eating and break it and then start like dealing with the nuances of macro breakdowns um for fat loss um hmm, what's the quickest way to explain well essentially you have to create a kcal deficit um and if you're in a situation where you've been in maintenance for a while a kcal deficit is 500 kilocalories per day less than you've been consuming that'd be that'd be roughly a pound uh per week of body fat loss um so if you, if you can figure out roughly what your maintenance calor calories are, then your fat loss kilocalories might be 500, or if you're over 200 pounds, maybe 700 kilocalories less than your maintenance calories. Um, and then at that point, um, it, I wouldn't start any higher than probably 0.3 grams per pound uh, for fat intake per day uh, for a fat loss phase. And then hit 0.8 grams per pound for protein per day. And then the rest, if you can allocate the rest to carbs, that's probably optimal for performance while you seek fat loss. I, I also linked up. So I'm, I'm going to give you a chance to talk about the, the macro calculator, because I think it's a, it's a fantastic tool that you've developed uh, to kind of hone in on, you know, specific macro breakdown for whatever activity you're looking at. I've actually used yeah, it like personally. Exactly. I love it exactly yeah. how much how much carbohydrate to have based on the exact training that you're doing that day and every day yeah i think it's a great tool too for those looking at it um obviously alex developed it um and 
it, it really allows you to kind of go in and based on the different types of equipment you have, whether you have a power meter, or if you don't, what type of bike you have, if you're running, if you're lifting, all those things. And, and it really gets into the weeds on what you're doing for the day. And it kind of, it'll kick you back out of range of here's how much protein you need to be doing. Here's how much, um, uh, carbohydrates, fat, those type of things for the, for the phase you're in as well. Um, one of the things I wanted to, to ask you about is you both times you, you mentioned for either fat loss or maintenance, you were, you started with intro workout fueling, right? If you, if you want to do it for, for performance, that's, that's where it's got to start. So you kind of have this overall picture of, if you, if you know, your, your total ca uh, carbohydrates is this, your total uh, fat is this, your total protein is this, you start with, with the, the, um, workout nutrition, and that's where you're going to do the, the bulk of your carbs. Talk a little bit about why that's so important and then how you would go about breaking down how much uh, carbohydrate you need for uh, an endurance session. Yeah. So um, your carbohydrate intake during training depends largely on the duration of that training. So in the case of a long, long session training day or a double session training day, it's possible that more than 50% of your carbohydrate intake should come from intra workout carbohydrate. Um, intake through mostly fluid sources. And we'll get into the details of fluid versus solid, solid stuff later. Um, but in shorter, in terms of shorter session days, like if you have a 90 minute bike ride or a 60 minute run, or you spend 60 minutes or 75 minutes in the pool, it's quite possible that you don't need to consume all of your carbs or, or very many carbs at all intra training. And that the rest of your carbohydrate intake should come from outside of training from more like satiating carb sources, healthy carbs. Um, more voluminous carbs, more nutrient dense carbs. But if you're, if we're talking about like three hour sessions, four hour sessions, five, six hour sessions. Yeah. Carbohydrate, carbohydrate intake is, is going to be potentially more than 50% of your intake for the day. And the way that you determine how much carbohydrate you intake during training is simply the length of the training. And then you can scale it back a little bit. Once you, once you identify the length of your training and how much how many carbs per hour you should have for that duration of training. There's a, there are like reasons you might scale back slightly. Um, but let's, let's talk about first, what does duration tell us about the carbohydrate need? Um, and, and then we can talk about what reasons why we might sometimes scale back um, and good rationales and bad rationales for scaling back. So uh, at the highest end, you, you might be able to absorb 120 to 150 grams of carbs per hour during training, assuming you start in a hydrated state, meaning you're hydrated, um, and assuming thermal stress during the training session, i.e. you're not sweating a ton, is, is thermal stress is low, um, you, can, you can consume 120 to 150 grams of carbs per hour and, and benefit from that. Um, also assuming that your sessions aren't going much longer than six hours down to probably three hours, that's beneficial. So if you can slam in, if you have, first of all, this all assumes that you have the, the kilocalorie room, like your caloric constraint is large enough that you can, you, you can consume 120 grams of carbs per hour on the bike and still not be starving the rest of the day because you have enough calories to go around. So for optimizing training purposes, down to three hours from six hours, roughly like 120 grams carbs per hour is like, is a good target to shoot for. Um, and you've probably heard like 90 grams of carbs per hour is, is like what that's like the gold standard, what people talk about. And that's like 
that was cool back in 2003. Um, and it's, 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 we've come a long ways in understanding how to intake those carbohydrates and shoot for the really high carb intake rates. Um, and because of that, you can benefit and you can like sustain power better and have better glycogen repletion post-training by doing the higher carb intake rate uh, for like three to six hour sessions. Down in like the two hour session range, it's probably not worth packing in 120 grams of carbs per hour because a lot of the carbohydrate that you're gonna be uh, using from your blood glucose is gonna be coming from your pre-workout meal for a two hour workout or like a one hour workout especially. Um, so as you shorten the workout, my recommended carb intake amounts decrease. And there's a table floating around online and maybe Mike can share that. Um, I, I put it in the, I put a link to it in the chat okay, too. Sweet. So check out that table and you'll see that as workout duration comes down, carb intake rate per hour also comes down because a larger portion of the carbs that are in your blood sugar can come from your pre-workout meal as workout duration comes down. Whereas in a three hour workout, your pre-workout meal is in and out of your system. It's provided the blood glu glucose that it's going to provide. And you have to start fueling much more aggressively uh, to keep blood glucose elevated while you train. And down, down in like the 60, 60 minute range is where uh, it gets debatable if there is actual performance benefit to fueling with carbs in those sessions. And I, what I mean by performance benefit is that the performance of that session will or will not be benefited by having taken in carbs during the session. That's a debatable point. But I think the best argument for fueling with some amount of carbs, maybe 30 grams of carbs per hour during a short session, like a 60 minute session, is that it kickstarts your glycogen repletion for the next training session. Uh, and there's just no reason to, to let glycogen dip. You, you If you want uh, training quality to be as high as possible, it makes sense to like have have glycogen packed in ASAP. The Probably the second best argument for having fueling be as high as possible or like on the higher end of the recommended uh, amounts in that table is that in the real world, training sessions sometimes run long. And if a training session does run long, it's, it's very wise to have been consuming the higher recommended, higher than recommended carbohydrate amount so that you're not like left high and dry when your session goes from 75 minutes to 90 minutes or, oh, you got a flat and now your three hour session is three and a half hours because you were stuck on the road fixing your bike for a half an hour. It's just a good idea to err on the higher side of things. So we got a question here from, from Alex, and, and this is actually a really good question. He says, um, if we have the same pre-workout meal every time, does that eventually impact how the body utilizes the nutrition from that meal? Um, and I think I can tie this too into kind of your pre-workout, um, like, do you need to eat before a workout? Can you hop on, start doing, you know? So basically I think he's asking if you have the same meal every time, um, would that impact how your body utilizes that nutrition from the meal? And then I'm going to add on to it and say, do you have to actually eat before a session or yeah. can you wake up fasted and go to, go to work? I'll ask a clarifying question back to Alex's question. Um, does he mean like, does there become sort of some sort of physiological staleness in response to the same meal every time? Or is he asking more, should there be quantitative differences in meal content as sessions get longer with regard to the pre-workout meal. 
So I'm asking if I was to eat a uh, toast with banana and peanut butter, every workout for the next three months, eventually mm-hmm. does my body stop absorbing as much of those carbs because I'm eating the same thing every time. That's a good question. And the answer is no, you can, oh. you can eat the same thing every day of your life. It's totally fine. And I have had clients do that. And I'm kind of a, I'm kind of like an automaton myself. So I will eat the same thing every day. Good to know because I eat the same thing every day. Yeah. And the lots of triathletes are similar. Like we're all type a pretty driven organized type folks. Um, some of us have OCD. Um, I prep sandwiches in the, in the fridge and I put them back in the bread bag and I have like a week's worth of sandwiches all prepped uh, and I eat them every week. Totally so, fine. From, from a yeah. performance perspective, performance perspective, it's totally fine. From a health perspective, you should probably have some variety. Okay. So let's, that's a, That was a good question. Let's talk uh, about, cause that, that kind of piggybacks on, should you eat before a workout? Can yeah. you wake up fasted? you know, can you start enter workout, you know, nutrition immediately? What are, what are your recommendations with that? The best argument for working out fasted is you are such a busy person that your life trade-offs are in favor of spending whatever time it would take to prep or consume a breakfast, uh, doing something else like training or sleeping. That's probably the best argument for fasted training. Um, another Acceptable argument is that you don't necessarily need to eat. Um, I guess that's along the same vein, but you don't necessarily need to eat if we're talking about a recovery intensity training session. Um, I would still recommend intra-workout carbs. It takes very little effort. And um, there are there are trade-offs of going into workouts fasted, especially if you do, if you also do the workout fasted intra-workout at those trade-offs are you may become less good at burning carbohydrate and you want to be really good at burning carbohydrate, um, all the time. So, so let me, let me clarify this. So let's say like, yeah, let me clarify this. So on Mm -hmm. like Saturday morning, you've got a four hour bike ride and the, and you want to sleep as long as possible, but you, you know, you're going to get up and you're going to start at 6am. Is there, is there any downfall to not waking up at five to eat something so that you can ride your bike at six. Let's sleep all the way up till say five forty-five. get on the bike, start riding. If you start taking an intra-workout fueling immediately as you start going. Do you have any pro triathletes in this group? Like people who are getting paid Nata- to do triathlon? Okay. Natasha does. <laughs> okay. At the elite level, I would say, maybe 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 there are marginal gains to be had by like having guaranteeing you're going to have some carbs pre-training but really marginal and a lot of times i'll have michelle just goes like sleep is so important that like going into a training session sometimes fasted is an acceptable trade-off to get more sleep and you just mitigate the like like it's it's especially a non-concern if the trade if the training session is like it's an aerobic session you're going out and riding zone two for five hours or you're going out for yeah anything low intensity or just the ride starts maybe it's a ramp session and you're like the first hour of the ride is super chill that's totally fine you can get your blood glucose elevated by consuming high intra-workout carbs while your intensity is low and it's really easy to consume super high intra-workout carbs while intensity is low because your gut disruption is lower when intensity is lower so you could easily target 150 grams of carbs per hour and a liter or more of fluid in the first hour of your training if it's a super chill training session all right, so we're getting a couple more questions here, yeah. and uh, I was I kind of formulated some questions as we we're going, but I think this one from Jules, I'm going to come back to yours because 
we're kind of on this intra workout fueling thing real quick. And I want to talk about how, so Andrew says any advantage, disadvantage to drinking a portion of carbs in electrolyte mixes versus uh, eating gels, et cetera, on the bike. My question that I was going to ask you uh, was you were talking about intra workout fueling there. Let's, what are the best ways to do that? Cause you're talking a little mm-hmm. bit about fluid intake versus maybe like solid foods, stuff like that to, to set, let's say your number is 120 grams of carbs per hour, right? If you're doing a four hour bike ride, yep. what are your recommendations to get there? And then Jules, I'm gonna come back to your question. So the, there are no trade-offs to doing a fluid only approach. And there are several benefits that doing a gel inclusive or a solid food inclusive approach would they would have those, those approaches would have trade-offs that a fluid only approach would, would not have. And when you're fueling, like, I think the biggest trade-off that I see uh, put forth by folks about a fluid only approach is that they get hungry and without fail, none of those people are consuming 120 grams of carbs per hour in their fluid. They're all consuming 40 grams of carbs or 60 grams of carbs. And yeah, you might get hungry on a four hour zone two ride, uh, only hitting 40 or 60 grams of carbs. Um, no, there's no trade-offs to doing a fluid only. And I would recommend that's, that's what we do. We don't buy gels anymore. We just do fluid and we use Gatorade as a flavoring. You could use anything, tailwind, scratch, heed, whatever as a flavoring essentially. And then we just use sugar as the rest of it, like straight table sugar, white sucrose. And the reason is, um, well, there's lots of reasons, but um, the osmolarity of sugar is just as good as maltodextrin and fructose combined. The sweetness is the same. Uh, The effect on blood sugar is the same during exercise. Um, And it's like $2 for four pounds of it, um, which is a great reason for me. Yeah, so uh, you can absolutely do a solid food inclusive approach. You can do a gel inclusive approach. You can do a totally mixed approach. The key is that your carb intake rate, your sodium intake rate, and your fluid intake rate has to be managed. It doesn't matter how you get those things in. You can get all your carbs from gels and drink exclusively fresh water and take salt tablets. That'd be a really expensive way to do it. but if you get the rate of sodium per hour, the rate of carbs per hour and the rate of fluid per hour appropriate for you and um, your training session, then it doesn't matter how it happens. I'll add one more benefit to the, to the sugar model is it's actually easy because one gram of sugar equals one gram of carbohydrate. Super so easy. The math is very, very easy. Um, I'm going to go back to Jules' question. Efficiency. Yeah. I'm going to go back to Jules' question because I think this was a good one too. Uh, is there a difference in carb intake per hour based on someone's height, weight. I'm going to add gender in there, Jules, Mm -hmm. for a training session or the 120 grams of carbs, the sweet spot for everybody. So that's where some of the nuance can come in. And I would say that it comes into play less than people think, especially in um, like middle of the pack or front of the pack age group triathletes. Um, You burn enough calories and you burn enough carbs, even as a very small female middle of the pack triathlete, you burn enough to, um, to validate consuming a hundred grams of carbs per hour, maybe not 120, but, um, yeah, the best reasons to consume less are GI distress, dehydration, uh, like extremely high intensity of the training, uh, or extremely low intensity of the training. Like if you're doing a two hour, zone one like coffee shop ride and you're only burning 300 calories per hour because you're barely spinning the cranks 
then it doesn't make sense to exceed your your expenditure with your carb intake. Um, but if you do the math and you have a power meter, you'll find very quickly that uh, your expenditure generally exceeds what is possible for you to intake, even at like aerobic intensity. I'll say this too, the thing you touched on too, like that unknown of, you know, if you, if you do like 120 versus a hundred and you get a flat tire, right. Or you end up lost somewhere. Like I always, I always encourage athletes to do a little bit more than they think because mm-hmm. of the unknown that's out there that you alluded to, too. Um, and that unknown stuff more... happens like so much more often than, so much. I mean, especially, I mean, I don't know if Michelle just has bad luck, but it's like our sessions take longer than they're prescribed. And then, and I would say that 75% of my athletes on training peaks are the same. And I have a few robots who I prescribe like a two hour and 15 minute session. And it takes two hours and 15 minutes and zero seconds to do that whole session. But the, yeah, most of us take longer than the prescribed time because we have a bathroom break or we stop to talk to a friend right. or whatever. Um, Natasha's got a question coming up and then Natasha, uh, coach Nick sent me one directly to me. So go ahead with yours and then I'll, okay. I'll ask his. Okay. Alex. So your wife is racing. What mm-hmm. amount of carbohydrates would you tell her to take in a sprint race versus mm-hmm. an Olympic race versus a 70.3 versus an Ironman? Great question. Uh, 30 grams of carbs total in a sprint race for her and her sprints take, um, anywhere from an hour and five to an hour and 12 ish. Um, super sprint would be none, uh, Olympic distance. I would probably try to have her do 90, 90 grams of carbs on the bike. And realistically, she'd only consume 70, um, just re- like from what actually happens. Uh, and then she would probably shoot for another 40 on the run maybe. And she would be like a two hour to two hour 20 Olympic distance, depending on the race. And then, uh, let's see. What else did you, did you ask about half, half iron? And half iron, iron yeah. Okay, sweet. Yeah, the long course. Um, she has her first half iron coming up, and this is all just off the top of my head. We'll, pro- we'll probably shoot for at least 100 grams an hour on the bike, and her bike will take two hours and 15 minutes, maybe. Um, that's total ballpark. Uh, and we'll shoot for probably... Well, whatever her gut is allowing on the run, and it might be hopefully at least 60 grams an hour, um, but it might be 80 or 90 if she's like some, sometimes if she has been on top of her hydration really well, she can do 90 or hundred grams an hour, even while running. And it feels great. And she feels super awesome. But as soon as dehydration sets in or she has a break in her consumption, then she tends to have to settle in like most of us at a lower carb intake rate. And it'll often be right around 60 or 70 an hour for when it's lower. So for a full iron, definitely 120 an hour, at least I would probably, I would, I would probably try to encourage her to do 130 grams an hour on the bike. And I think realistically she'd get down 120 and then man, dehydration is just such a big, a big factor in what you're able to consume, uh, especially once you hit the run. Um, so if you're dehydrated and you have a decreased intake rates, the run, the marathon could be really, really bad. And you're stuck at 40 grams an hour, or if you can, if you can handle 80 grams an hour, cause intensity is lower and you've managed your hydration. Well, then 80 or 90 grams an hour on the marathon is fantastic. I'm going to, so those, those add up to like, I mean, 125 hours on the Ironman. Yeah. We're talking seven, 800, 900 grams of carbs in an Ironman. 
I'm going to say right now, we're going to run a little bit long tonight because I got a couple other questions here. So if anybody wants to hop off, feel free, but we're going to take advantage of having uh, Alex with us tonight. So, um, this is like my favorite topic in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah. So coach Nick, uh, actually kind of to piggyback off of Natasha's question asked, uh, about kind of pre-race timing. So, uh, I guess it would depend on the, the, the race itself, but, um, is there a certain amount of carbs you're trying to look at, uh, taking it in pre-race what like timing pre-race before the swim? Like what, what's kind of your thought process there? Pre-race is the one time I will have athletes sacrifice sleep to get carbs in at a higher, higher rate, especially if it's an important race, assuming that they're not like chronically sleep deprived. If, if they're regularly well slept, I will have them sacrifice sleep if needed and wake up pretty early before a race to get a big breakfast in a big carby breakfast, because the less you can consume and still have elevated blood sugar during the race, the better. So for a sprint, it might be like 80 or hundred grams of carbs for something longer. It might be 120 or 150 grams of carbs for breakfast. And timing would probably be, I would say, have it, have your last bite taken two hours before you get in the water for a warm up or before you start running or riding, if you're going to do it like a reverse try type warm up. And then is there anything you're trying to hit, like, say like 15 minutes before the swim starts or. or... Yep. Yeah. So I'll have, I'll have folks usually try to like have an intro workout uh, beverage or gel uh, or some sort of intro workout intake during the swim. But really what that means is you consume it intermittently during your warm up. If you can come back to the shore and sip during your warm up. And then you consume a small bolus right before you go out and and swim or five minutes before the swim start. So it might be a total of 40 grams of carbs plus like eight to 16 ounces of water, depending on like how well practiced this person is at consuming water and carbs. We got, we got some more really good questions here. So, um, yeah. So I was, you talked a lot about GI stress and then we got a question here from David that I think is, is unique to, to GI stress. Um, he said, does it matter if I pump 240 grams of carbs in the first 15 minutes of a two hour training session? I think that's going to lead to some GI stress. So let's, let's talk a little bit about why that would lead to GI stress and why you don't want to have that happen. Yeah. You, your gut will be unlikely to pass that amount of carbohydrate um, in that hour. And so you'll have sort of a backlog of stuff in your stomach and small intestine. Uh, and it may, especially if you can't consume much water with that, it may draw water into your gut, which can cause gut cramping and reduce blood volume and reduce thermoregulation ability because you need water in your skin to sweat and thermoregulate. Uh, so doing a really like, like a, a cat, uh, I call it like a catastrophic rescue carb intake because you're so low carb. Uh, it sounds like a good idea until it wrecks your gut and uh, once that, once you over carb and you over concentrate, uh, like 240 grams of carbs would have to be intaken with a liter of water or less, because you just don't have room for, for any more volume than that in your gut in an hour. So let's say you do 240 grams of carbs plus a liter of water. Once you do that, you're at like 24% concentration in your gut and you've over concentrated your gut. And when you do that, your hydration, like the fluid absorption in your gut and the carb absorption in your gut actually slows down further. So you'll actually put yourself more behind um, for future intake. So basically you you never want to exceed your gut tolerance or your gut limits because it'll set you back because you have to slow 
your intake down and let your gut catch up. And during that time, your blood sugar is dropping and your hydration is, is reducing. I'll throw you a softball just to wrap that question up. Uh, mm-hmm. How would you know if you're over exceeding? Uh, you need to push the limits in training. So find out where, how much you, I mean, some, some guys I have, I have had guys consume 150 grams of carbs for five hours straight. And they're like, I think I've actually could have consumed more like, and it was, uh, I don't know if I've ever exceeded that, but yeah, you have to push the limits in training and find out where does your gut cramp, find out what gut cramps feel like. <laughs> it's not fun. Uh, but you'll know because you'll be like, I really don't want to consume anymore. My stomach hurts. And the only thing I want to consume is like sips of water here and there to try to dilute it. Um, and eventually, if you have stomach cramps, you'll probably end up having diarrhea later, um, which is not super fun. Yeah, that was kind of my, the, the so that's how you figure it, it out. Yeah, if you if you're going to have to stop at the porter potty every every aid station, we probably overconsumed. Um, yes. I think that's a good point, though, too, as you talked about Michelle's fueling for her races coming up is um kind of that position of like where you're at on the run if you can handle 40 if you can handle 80 like per you know hour like it just it's going to depend on what you can do and like what your gut is going to be able to tolerate in that in that moment so i think that's an important factor in terms of like doing this stuff in training over and over again to figure out where your gut limit is because once you figure that out you're going to know when you're getting there and when you can when you start to scale it back so um and you can get gut Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, you're good. Go. I was going to say, you can give yourself gut cramps for a number of reasons. And some of the biggest abusers are too high of energy density or too high of concentration. So you end up with like 20% carbs or 200 grams of carbs per liter. That'll cause it Uh, over glucosing or over fructosing. So if you have too much of either one of those sugars, um, I would say a safe range to be in for those would be somewhere between two to one glucose to fructose and one to one glucose to fructose. If you end up outside that, you will either over over fructose or over glucose, and both of those can cause gut distress because it can't pass through the um, the protein channels that bring that from the gut to the blood. Um, the final reason people, or the final one that I can think of right now that people get gut distress and cramps from is over electrolyte concentration or too high of electrolyte concentration. So if you intake like and it makes the osmolarity of the beverage too high. So if you can take 3000 mg of sodium with a liter of water, uh, you're, especially if it's like table salt or NaCl, the osmolarity goes up really high. Um, and yeah, you can have that osmotic laxative effect later. Let's, that's actually leads me into this other question uh, from Tiff uh, Saunders. She said, uh, two months ago, they switched from a brand name nutrition mix and went to per hour, uh, third cup of sugar, water, two grams sodium citrate, two grams sea salt. Uh, rest of the nutri- daily nutrition stayed the same, consistent, uh, yet they feel more bloated and body composition much softer versus when they used the previous mix. Is that, uh, could that be a result of the current concoction or uh, just kind of a, other thoughts on that? Oh, read me the details of that concoction again. Yeah, the concoction says um, a third cup sugar plus water plus two grams sodium citrate plus two grams of sea salt. That's super high electrolyte. And is that going in one liter? I would, I would think it's probably going in one bottle uh, based on that's what super duper what high electrolyte. Um, if you can tolerate that during training, that's fantastic because you should knock it in half and have just 2000 milligrams of sodium per liter and your hydration will be better and you'll feel way less watery. Um, I don't think I've ever heard of anybody being able to tolerate that sort of intake every hour without having um, like an osmotic laxative effect later. 
typically I recommend like uh, a gram and a half of, or, or rather a teaspoon and a half of sodium citrate as a maximum. Um, that's like 15, 1600 milligrams of sodium. And then you put that in one liter. But So if you're putting that in anything less than one liter, um, that's, that's up there. Yeah. Sodium citrate is another easier one because one teaspoon is kind of give or take Roughly about a thousand, a thousand yeah. milligrams of sodium. So uh, simple math. Uh, Caitlin uh, asked, she's doing her first Ironman, full Ironman, and wanted to kind of know how she should fuel leading up to the race. So maybe in that last couple days, maybe the last week going into the race, you know, you hear those terms like carbo load, mm -hmm. you know, the, the day before, or you look like Michael Scott in the office and you slam some fettuccine Alfredo the night before the, right before the 5k. And then mm -hmm. you, you can't during run. the 5k. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Carb carb loading is, is probably most important for Olympic distance and half Ironman, uh, events. Because and the, the reason I say that it becomes less important for full iron is that other things become more important, like your intro workout hydration management in an Ironman uh, probably is more important um, than than just topping off your glycogen stores because you're going to run out of glycogen stores in an Ironman regardless. Uh, there's no staving that off. Um, but in like a three hour Olympic distance or a two and a half hour Olympic distance, you you may see some performance benefit from carb loading. So and maybe even in some in a sprint, but less so. Um, so how to do that is uh, eat a lot of carbs three days before the race and try to probably have a slight caloric surplus, which means your fats can probably come down a bit. Your protein can come down a bit. Certainly your fiber shouldn't go up, uh, which means you need to be c consuming like low residue carbohydrates, which is why some folks will turn to power bars or even just beverage form carbohydrate. Um, and the best time to consume that is generally around your training because that's when it's most likely to get packed in as glycogen. Um, but you can have it around the clock too, and you should have it around the clock too, but definitely in those final three days, if you're going to increase, if you're going to increase carbs by say uh, 250 grams of carbs, three days before 250 grams of carbs, two days before and the 150 or 250 grams of carbs. And these are numbers above and beyond what you would normally consume for the, your, the training that you did those days. Um, if you're going to increase by those amounts, uh, the bulk of it should happen intra training and around training with some around the clock. And then I generally recommend folks finish consuming the added carbs that they would consume above whatever their normal, normal daily training would call for by like five or 6 PM each day, just so that you don't disturb your sleep. Uh, and then also so that you don't have like gastrointestinal issues that you're still passing the carbs uh, like the next morning, especially the day before the race. Can, can I say something? Can, yeah, uh, you said um, for Ironman, you wouldn't really change too much, right? I might still uh, add some. A, a little bit more? Sure, of course. Yeah. I would say just less, I, I would say it becomes less important, but maybe I honestly, I would still do it. Uh, yeah. It's just less critical, less mission critical. Did, did, did I, sorry, I totally interrupted you. Did that, that actually attend to what you were going to ask? Yeah, yeah, no, no, that I just you started okay. with this list, you know, and so I just wanted to clarify. Got it. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I would still carb load for Iron Man. Okay, Perfect. just not a fettuccine Alfredo five minutes yeah, before the race. Lower fat um, is probably better. Um, uh, Dave uh, asked too, uh, was he said macros, so we're kind of shifting back to just overall nutrition macros. He said, doesn't matter the 
uh, quality as long as you meet the numbers. For performance, it does not matter. Um, but if you'd like to live a long and healthy life, it probably does matter. And the longer I've been coaching folks with uh, on their diet, I, the more I've become one of those like cliche RD dietitians. It's like, you should probably eat some vegetables. I, ha I had, um, I had a bunch of canned text. I still have some canned text from early on in my career coaching that said basically, essentially like I've had a few clients eat no vegetables whatsoever and their blood markers all improved. And it's true, but I think that there is evidence that yeah, having a varied diet and some vegetables is, is probably a good idea, but no, for performance, hit the macros, manage the timing reasonably, and you can go a long ways. Bob uh, asked, for on that chart when it goes above six six hours it actually comes back down to 90 grams per yeah. hour why i'm gonna why i'm gonna update that, that. okay <laughs> that's that's a great point and i get i get asked that all the time online too and it's with good reason but it needs updating because i don't think that it should come down so far and actually did i did i send you the updated one with the red cross through it actually i don't think i have that one no okay so the reason it reduces in general is because hydration becomes so mission critical in super long events, especially if there's thermal stress, it's hot or humid or whatever. Um, hydration becomes so mission critical that if you sacrifice hydration early on, you will be forced into a lower carbohydrate intake later during the race because your gut won't absorb as well when you're dehydrated. Um, and you're, you'll end up spending so much time in a slightly dehydrated state with slightly reduced cardiac output and slightly reduced thermoregulatory ability. Hydration is just so mission critical as events get really long. And because it's mission critical and because super high carbohydrate intake may sacrifice fluid absorption in the gut slightly, it's better to optimize fluid absorption in the gut and have a slightly lower carbohydrate intake rate. So we might be talking about like 90 to 110 grams of carbs per hour um, while still maintaining body weight through water and sodium intake. The truth is if you can intake 120 grams of carbs per hour and you can intake whatever fluid and sodium intake it takes for you to maintain your body weight, during the course of an Ironman, you can do 120 grams of carbs per hour. And that's why I'm going to update that table. But for most folks uh, who haven't like really, really maximized their carbohydrate intake practice and, and, and the steadiness of fueling that it requires and the, like the optimization of the fluid and the sodium and the carbs to make it all happen. For most folks, if you have to err on one side, erring slightly less on the carbs and a little higher on fluid intake and sodium intake is probably better. I will say this too. Alex spends a lot of his time uh, lurking in the resident forums on online, like uh, Slow Twitch and Trainer Road, and a lot of those. So uh, you can find if you if you frequent those sites, you can find a lot of these responses in there as well uh, in those forums. So I'm going to ask this one because John wanted to know, and I feel like this is a very forum-heavy topic. Uh, is there a benefit to adding amino acids into your intra-workout fueling drink? <laughs> I feel like you've probably answered that online somewhere. Somewhere. Um, no, it's a, it's a good question. Um, from a protein perspective and a muscle, muscle preservation perspective, no. From a cognitive, cognitive performance enhancement perspective, maybe. 
and I, I would say I have a pretty, I have a pretty loose budget when it comes to anything that could be performance enhancing for Michelle. So that is, we, she has 15 supplements that she takes. BCAAs are not on the list. They're low enough down on my list that I don't deal with them and they're pretty pricey and there may be trade-offs of doing them. If you put a few more grams of BCAAs in your beverage, maybe you have to intake a couple grams less carbohydrate. It increases the osmolarity. It reduces the risk of, of gut distress, all of that. So I don't do it. Maybe I will someday, but not yet. Thank you cool. for saying um, that. <laughs> Why is that? Appreciate that. The BCAAs <laughs> is like the new hot thing. Everybody's all about it. Thank gotcha. you for talking some rational sense into these folks. <laughs> Um, hey, okay. hey, Mike, you missed, yeah. you missed a question um, back here from Andrew. He said, best way to figure out sodium intake. Mm -hmm. So Alex, I'll let you oh, answer yeah. that. We use a company we send, but go ahead. Yeah, so you can sweat test. Um, I don't do that. And the, the reason I don't particularly do that is because it can change over time. Um, and I'm like... I'm obsessed with efficiency and it's just one more thing that I would have to spend a moment doing. So I, that's just on me, but, um, the, the best, the, the truthful answer is, uh, if you're sweating a lot, you're probably sweating in excess. Like if you're sweating noticeably, you have like, you can see water on you or you can see salt on your Jersey because you're in a hot, dry environment and the water is evaporating off before you see it. Um, if you're sweating, what I would consider noticeably, not like extreme, but just you can notice that you are sweating. I would say you're probably exceeding a liter per hour of sweat. And most people have like 700 milligrams of sodium loss per liter as a minimum. Most people, like lots of people lose a whole lot more than that per liter. They might lose 1200 per liter or, or whatever. Um, and the goal should be to intake the same amount of sodium that you are losing um, and so if you're exceeding a liter per hour and you sweat at least 700 milligrams per liter, it's very easy to have your sweat lost or your sodium loss in sweat exceed what you can actually intake. And so in general, I recommend aim pretty high with the sodium. So start at like 750 per hour or a thousand megs per hour. Um, and that's per liter as well. And I have lots of folks do like 1500 milligrams per liter. And as far as I understand it, there's no trade-off to doing more, more sodium intake, as long as it's not causing gut distress, osmotic laxative effect, um, or, or stomach cramping. There's no trade-off to doing more than what you're losing. You might just retain the water that you're consuming better and remain better hydrated, have better blood volume and cardiovascular performance and thermoregulatory performance and all of that. Um, so yeah, start with 700, 750, maybe a thousand megs per hour, and you can bump it up substantially higher. And if somebody here is doing sounded like much more than 2000 megs per hour, sounded more like close to 3000 or 4000 megs per hour. That's incredible. Um, and I have seen people online say that they handle 2000 megs per hour, no problem. Um, which is higher than I've actually done. So I would say start high. There's no trade-offs to going higher until your gut is cramping. I've got two more queued up here, and uh, if anybody else has questions, obviously we you can drop them in the chat here. We'll we'll keep rolling, but um, I think these are two really good questions. So um, I'm gonna finish. Let's do Allie's here uh, because it kind of pertains to what you were just talking about in terms of um, kind of that gut. Uh, she said she I did a sweat test and had results saying my body does a poor job of absorbing fluids. 
She said, I uh, occasionally get a, like the sloshy stomach feeling. Mm-hmm. What would be some tips to help kind of prevent that? Well, the reasons, the reasons that people's guts generally absorb fluid slowly is uh, entering a training session with dehydration, waiting too long to start drinking during the training session. It's like having like a 20 minute delay as you, as you warm up before you start drinking, because then you've incurred maybe a half a liter worth of sweat loss or a quarter liter of sweat loss. And any, any amount of dehydration reduces your gut's ability to absorb water. So it's not like you get dehydrated and all of a sudden your gut's like, yay, water, I'm dehydrated. It's the opposite. When you get dehydrated, your gut actually becomes less functional. Uh, So entering with any level of dehydration is a problem. One problem I've seen in a a number of my clients is folks will think that they are becoming more hydrated pre-training by drinking lots of water, fresh water, coffee, just any fluid without sodium. And what they actually are doing is washing out sodium and peeing out all the water they're drinking and becoming mildly hyponatremic, like non-clinical hyponatremia. It's not a health risk, but it's a performance detriment because their body's not actually retaining the water that they're drinking. So if you're the person who's like, I mean, like me, I've gotten myself in trouble. I have fresh water and then this this beverage has no sodium in it. Um, if, you, if you're drinking like a liter of that per hour, you're not actually becoming any better hydrated. You're just washing out sodium and you have to have sodium in your blood to hold the water. Otherwise your body will just pass it through. So if you find yourself at being bad at absorbing fluid, I would say start with more sodium and more fluid two or three hours before training. So that, and I mean like a fair amount more sodium, a thousand megs, 1200 megs, 1500 megs per liter so that the body actually holds the water that you have. And then you'll probably be able to consume more water uh, during training and actually absorb it. Yeah, to add on to to that real quick, Mike, let me interject. Yeah. I've had a lot of success with success with that exact thing, right? When people start feeling the sloshy gut, it's because the sodium's low. It's not because the fluid's high, right? So if you bring the sodium up before that session to where it needs to be, then maintain the amount of sodium intake that you need during the session, you can increase the amount of fluid as long as the amount of sodium is high enough. And then you will tend to draw in that fluid and, and, and decrease that sloshiness feeling in your stomach. So the initial, the initial response is people are thinking like, you know, drinking more water before, like you said, is actually washing it out and increasing the problem. You need to bring the sodium up first. And then when the sodium is up to the level where it needs to be to start the session, continue to in, take in the amount of sodium that you need. And then you can increase the amount of water with that lowering the osmolality of that fluid and then your body will intake a little better and you'll decrease the sloshiness. Make sense? Is that right? Is that what you're you're saying? Yeah. And just, I mean, just having more sodium on board in general will encourage better, better hydration in general. And better hydration in general means less, less gut resistance to absorption. That is uh, that is Coach Harold. I don't know if you could tell by his beautiful mustache, but he's our resident uh, strength and conditioning coach for our team, as well yeah. as has his own tri- triathletes too. But um, he's probably the smartest smartest one in the group by awesome. by far. Um, okay, so I got one more question. Then if anybody else has anything, drop it in. We can we can kind of wrap it up. But I think this is a great one to finish on because uh, this is this is definitely one you have I've seen you dive into online before. Uh, Kevin asks about. Exogenous ketones, fat ad, fat ad, adaptation, fueling with fat, right? What are what are your opinions on that? Because we've talked a lot about fueling with carbohydrates, and I feel like 
yep. this is probably something you've spent hours on the internet talking to people about. Yeah, I actually prepared for a debate with Dan Plews, Plews, um, uh, about this topic, uh, but I, I pulled out, um, not, not because of uh, fear of the debate or anything, but I just, my bandwidth got crazy back in April. Um, and I don't even know if, if, our, if our host pitched it to him, but yes, I have spent, uh, I've spent lots of hours thinking about this and, and, and trying really, truthfully, very selfishly try, trying to figure out, is there something to exploit here to make Michelle faster? Like, and then if there is, then I need to write a book on it and like take advantage. <laughs> um, I need to be taking advantage of this. So I, I mean, I was very optimistic that there would be something that could be beneficial in some ways that I could, I could exploit um, with regard to either fat intake uh, during training or after training or before training or, or in my diet breakdown overall um, and, or having some sort of reduced carb intake before training, during training, after, after training or cyclically in the, in like a, a training cycle or, and, and the short answer is there's no place for it. It never pans out uh, physiologically. There may be placebo effects and placebo effects are incredibly strong in endurance sports um, and shouldn't be discounted. So if you, if you have something that's working for you and it makes you feel good and you race well on it and train well on it, don't discount that. That's like, like feeling feelings and drive matter an amazing amount in endurance sports. And if you're not sure, like take a lot of caffeine and you'll see that like when your mood is higher and it, and you are driven, you perform better. Um, but yeah, back to fat adaptation. So fat, first of all, let's talk fat intra-workout. Fat intra-workout slows down gut absorption. Slowing down gut absorption is bad for everything because it means you just absorb, well, less fluid, less sodium and less carbs. And so your intake rates of all those things have to go down if you consume fats. If you can consume fats along with whatever amount of fluid, sodium and carbs that you're intaking during training and you can consume fats, then you could be in taking more of those other things and your performance would benefit by being able to onboard more carbs. Um, so yeah, gut absorption disturbance is the best argument against fat consumption during training. The, the primary problem that um, the fat adaptation approach or cyclical, uh, cyclical carbohydrate, reduced carbohydrate approach for the purpose of becoming better fat adapted primary problem with that approach is the time course of events. So the time course of becoming better at fat burning is uh, more transient than the time course of becoming worse at carb burning. So for every amount that you become good at fat burning, you become worse at carb burning. And that's why if you look at, if you look at the literature, there actually are zero studies showing that a fat at a, uh, adapted athlete, um, or a group of fat adapted athletes performs better than a group of carb adapted athletes, as long as over the, the chronology of the study, weight is, uh, is the same. So sometimes fat adapted athletes will lose more weight because of whatever reasons, and then they perform better. But if weight is held steady, um, yeah, there's no cases, no studies whatsoever. And I looked high and low um, because I was optimistic. Um, yeah, there's just no there's no cases where fat adapted athletes outperform. There are lots of cases where they, they perform the same and they can find no differences between the groups, but there's no advantage to doing any sort of fat adaptation or cyclical fat 
uh, a reduced carbohydrate intake approach. I, I like what you said about okay. the, how you started. On. Oh, go ahead. Let me make a quick point on that, Mike. Um, all these guys like Dan Plews included and uh, these top triathletes that are claiming fat adaptation, trust me, they are still using carbs in races, okay? They are, they are implementing a daily nutrition plan during their training where they are claiming, you know, these, uh, you know, uh, being able to use fat for energy at higher intensities. But in races, I promise you, they are still using carbs. And, and then also you want to look at this from a training kind of aspect as well, because if you are training for a long distance, like an Ironman distance triathlon, and you are doing the proper amount of lower intensity, lower heart rate zones, aerobic training, which all of us, all the coaches on this, on this panel, um, all agree that is necessary for the longer distance racing, uh, Ironman distance triathlon. And if you are training in those lower zones, then you are probably already optimally fat adapted, yes. right? And you then <laughs> use carbs in races for performance. And, and I would argue that though they may use carbohydrates in, in races, they would be better at using those carbohydrates in races if they fueled with carbohydrates, not just because they'd be better at strategizing and their gut would be better at absorbing it, but because their muscles will actually use the carbohydrate more efficiently if they regularly have a stock of high carbohydrate in training. That's, that's my number one argument with, with, with opposing this type of strategy is that those athletes that are trying that strategy ultimately become less robust at absorbing carbs in racing. Yep. I'll say this too. And I think you hit on a very important point early on in that answer, Alex, is you said, if you're doing something that makes you feel good, then continue to do it. Right. And there yep. are, there are definitely athletes out there who can be fat at a, uh, adapted and do, do well. Right. Mm -hmm. I think for Absolutely. the most, most of us, the coaches on this, this panel would all agree that we're trying to provide information and knowledge for a wide audience right and i think as you start to get into that fat adaptation you know fat for fuel getting not using carbs you start to narrow your focus down to a very small minority of people which doesn't benefit you know a larger audience uh and, and you are a perfect example because you said you're working on michelle and if there's any uh, you know uh, anything there that can make her faster, you're going to do it, and you couldn't find anything. But I would I would challenge everybody on this call on this team that when you do things, really get in tune with how your body feels, because if you're just doing something like being you know going into workouts fasted because you're supposed to, or because somebody said that that's going to help you lose weight, but you feel like garbage, there's a reason why, right? And that I think is the key, you know, over over anything else is that understand how your body feels and then if you don't feel good let's change it let's let's do some other things to try to make sure that we're we're doing uh what we can to feel good when you when you're chasing performance perfect okay alex do you want to close on anything before we tell you thank you hmm. did i miss anything i'm sure as soon as we get off here i'm gonna i'm gonna think oh i should have mentioned that Hmm. Well, let me let me say this before while you think for a split second, we dropped a link to um, the RP uh, endurance diet uh, ebook, which you and Michelle uh, co-wrote uh, along with a, I, I can't remember the other name. Uh, uh, Mel Davis. 
Mel Davis, yeah. Uh, the three of you co- kind of co-wrote that. It's a great, great ebook uh, for anybody who's out there. All the stuff that you talk about in today is in there. Uh, we dropped the link to the RP uh, Endurance Macro Calculator, which we talked a little bit about, which is a good resource. Um, I got your Instagram in there. If people want to follow you, obviously you talk about this stuff all the time on there. Uh, and then your newsletter link is another way that people can follow you. And uh, so those we'll send all that out in, in the email and stuff as well too. Um, I think that's probably what Natasha was yes. going to say. So, okay. <laughs> I'll, say, send this, I'll send it yeah. to everybody. <laughs> okay, cool. Okay. And then, yeah. So anything, uh, anything else you want to close up with? I think that covers everything unless somebody has a, a burning question. I'm, I'm happy to answer. It's, this is, this is fun. Mm-hmm. I'll, let me, I'll, I'll one more, one more thing, Natasha, that we didn't hit on yeah. that, were, that was in my notes that I think is really important for those athletes that are searching for a diet phase. Um, because I think that the diet culture uh, really promotes just like continuously dieting for years and years and years. Right. And so what are some of your like quick tips for the athletes on our team that maybe be looking at reshaping body comp by doing a diet phase uh, in terms of maybe setting a goal, you know, weight loss rate, stuff like that. Yeah, that's a super easy answer. Be more conservative than you think and probably by like double or triple more conservative. So if you think you want to lose 20 pounds, lose eight pounds and then keep it off for like five months. There's there's no rush. If you guys are not like pros reaching the end of your career and you have the Olympics coming up and you have to be a certain weight, which you probably don't anyway. Um, yeah, there's there's not a huge rush. And the the statistics are not in favor with folks losing massive amounts of weight and then only maintaining it for a short period and then trying to lose more weight. And the statistics are like a lot more in favor of folks who take an approach of like maybe six tenths of a pound to eight tenths of a pound per week, or at the highest end, like 0.8 to 0.9% of body weight per week. And that's pretty high for an endurance athlete. Um, And then keep it short, keep it like six to 10 weeks. Sometimes I have folks go out to 12 weeks, but usually like I set the, I set the standard as like, you can do fat loss for 12 weeks. And then almost invariably with every endurance athlete by like six to eight weeks, I'm like, Hey, we should start thinking about the end of this because like your performance is still good, but you're getting tired. You're starting to get run down. Let's end it now and move into a maintenance phase now before your performance is, is bad. So yeah, be, be way more conservative, like put right down what you want, 15 pounds down in, in, in 10 weeks or whatever, and then cut it in half and then do that and make it stick. Perfect. Well, yeah, folks, that's what I had in my notes. Yeah, Sorry. good. Folks are going to have to listen to this whole hour and six minutes because a lot of people will need to exactly hear that <laughs> right at the end. So we'll make sure to point folks to that. Um, that was amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Alex. I of think course, it was super fun. Agree. Yeah, everyone would agree there was incredible information. I learned a lot. And uh, yeah, just uh, appreciate your time. And then guys, we'll be sending this out. So you'll have your recording to be able to go back to with all the links um, and then how to, to reach out to Alex as well if you if you have any more questions or, or want to work with him. So, okay, guys, appreciate you all. Have a great week and we will see you next week. Thank you all. That was super fun. Hope to do Thanks, it again guys. sometime soon. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love that. Thanks, Alex. Bye, y'all. That was good. Really?